Amen. Thank you, Trey, and to your team. Thank you, Rick, for those good reminders of gospel grace extending even to Mississippi State fans. Uh, so please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Chapter 2 of what we call Paul's first letter to the church of God in Corinth. And eventually I will explain to you why I say it. That is the letter we call 1 Corinthians. But you'll have to come back to hear about that one. We're continuing to make our slow march through this practical and deeply theological book. By way of reminder, we're jumping into the middle of an argument that Paul is making, an extended argument over several chapters, an argument against divisions that had grown up in this um, Greek city, a church in this Greek city called Corinth that's under Roman control. Corinth, if you will remember, is a very metropolitan city. It lies on an isthmus between two great seas, the names of which have escaped me at the moment, but they're there, I promise. Sailors would sail into the port on one side of the isthmus, and through a series of trolleys and transports, they would actually have their ship carried across dry land and dropped into the other sea. And that meant great traffic between the two bodies of water, which also meant great profit coming into the city continually flowing into the city. And with great wealth comes great influence and also great temptation for worldliness. Or to say it another way, with great sailing interest in the city came a great number of sailors and all the problems that comes with that. And so you could imagine a sailor stepping off of his vessel with pockets full of cash that he had just made selling his Wears there in the city, and he's looking at the sun set over the mountains behind him, and he sees on top of the skyline the temple to Aphrodite, which is the Greek goddess of love. And as the sun was setting, the beautiful courtesans would make their way out of that temple of love, and they would woo the sailors in, and they would help the sailors lighten their pocketbook and enjoy in some sensual recreation and worship to their god of love. Indeed, this behavior was so prevalent that the city's name became a byword for indulging in all manner of carnality, of sensuality. But it wasn't just sensuality that was trendy in Corinth. Corinth was host to the Isthmian Games, which is an athletic event second only to the Olympic Games held in nearby Athens. And these games attracted the best athletes, those men who, just like today became celebrities because of the great talents and physical abilities that God had given them. To win the Isthmian Games or to win at the Olympics made a man nearly godlike. It'd be like winning the Super Bowl MVP or the Heisman Trophy. Instant celebrity status and recognition. So first century Corinth doesn't sound so far away from us today, does it? And this is the city into which Paul had landed and he had planted this church in this cosmopolitan city. You can read about his um, entering the city in Acts 18. Paul spent over a year and a half there laboring. And now this church that he had planted, that he had birthed, as it were, had imbibed too much of the culture's influence, 
The people of God at the church in Corinth had begun to judge. They had begun to evaluate those in their midst according to the values that the world values. They began to judge according to fleshly standards, according to worldly wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And this was causing all manner of problems. Later, Paul will address several other issues, but in our argument, he's addressing the divisions, the tribalism that had arisen. And in our text, in the first five verses of chapter 2, he's specifically using his own manner of ministry to illustrate a point that he had made in chapter 1, that God's wisdom is not like man's wisdom. And so to illustrate that man's fleshly wisdom is the opposite of God's wisdom, Paul explains how he came to the Corinthians, how it was that he preached among them, and why he did it that way. And in defense of his own ministry, we will be reminded tonight how we must also judge faithfulness from a minister, from a church, and in our own lives. What does faithfulness look like? We'll be reminded how we can be tempted to look for all the wrong things, to look for all the wrong metrics, all the wrong standards, all the wrong fruit, rather than trusting in God's simple wisdom of Christ crucified and that proclamation as the test of faithfulness for a minister, for a church, and for each of us. And so let's jump into our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 5. Hear the word of our Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my power were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we are needy people. We have many distractions among us, many distractions around us from the world, and we have even distractions that bubble up from our own hearts. And we pray that you would give us clarity of mind and heart, give us laser-like focus to see the truth of Christ crucified and how that simple message preached with faithfulness comes with power and with the demonstration of the Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would make that the mark of the ministry here of the saints of God at Morning View that you would move, that you would send your spirit to redeem sinners, and you would do this not by lofty speech or wisdom, but by simple, faithful truthfulness of Christ on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by looking at verse 1 and see Paul's plan for ministry. Paul's plan for ministry, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He did not come. You could imagine that in a very cosmopolitan city with all of its rhetoric schools and its intellectual capital, its ivory towers, that Paul would be certainly tempted to appeal to such things. Or with all of the uh, athleticism and all of the athletic celebrities that would have been around there appeal to those things. Paul, 
You know we're the capital of the games. Why don't we start a soccer league? That would be way more fun. We'd get way more people in here than this opening up the Bible and talking about it. Or maybe we could get last year's MVP of the games to come and give us a talk. Think of all the people that would come if we brought him in. Or perhaps instead of preaching about this Jesus all the time, maybe we brought in one of the local rhetorics, uh, rhetoricians, excuse me, one of the local orators to come in and give us a talk about sound business principles or about conservative social values. We've studied the demographics, Paul. That's what people are really interested in. Don't you want to meet people where they are? You can hear these temptations. We can see them all around us even today. Simple, faithful gospel preaching is maligned as insignificant. It's insufficient even. It's not enough. It's outdated and boring. We need to move past this monologue and into a dialogue. We need to have a pastor that's approachable and we can go back and forth rather than hearing a declarative statement from God. And we, or maybe we see preaching as something we just have to get through. We have to muscle through to get to the stuff that really is important, that really feeds me, like social projects or missions or fellowship, or good things. But preaching is seen as the kind of, I'll get through that if I can get to the fun stuff. But Paul wouldn't have it. He wouldn't do it. That's why he explains in verse 2 where we see our second point, Paul's practice, positively, what he does in ministry. Paul's practice in ministry. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ crucified. And take notice of his intentionality. You'll skip over this if you don't. Pay attention. He says, I decided to know nothing. This was on purpose. It didn't just happen this way on his own. He didn't stumble into this path of ministry and say, well, yeah, I kind of like that. That works. I'll keep going with that. He decided on the front end. He made it a point ahead of time, and that's significant. A minister, a church, and indeed a Christian has to decide what will be the foundation of their work. How will they go about their work? You can't wait for the temptations to arise or the pressures to build. You must have a sound foundation, solid principles before the temptations come. Otherwise, it will be too late. Many of the churches today have already lost this battle. They did not decide early on. They didn't decide ahead of time. They didn't solidify their convictions at the start of their ministries that they would stand upon the simple proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so they wander. They falter. They go in whatever direction seems prudent in the moment. Whatever gets a response. Whatever gets people in the doors. That's why we have the church growth movement, the megachurch model. Pragmatism. If it brings people in, God must be blessing it. That's the logic. It must be okay then, if God's blessing it. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He says that he decided early on that he'd know nothing but Christ crucified. Whether it brought in thousands or dozens, he would be content with the message. He doesn't change the plan or adapt his ministry model in order to appeal more to fallen, sinful men. He decided before he arrived to stand only on Christ. And we must be 
vigilant to do the same. But he not only speaks of intentionality in his ministry, verse 2 makes clear that he decided to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we know from Paul's example in the book of Acts and from his exhortations in the pastoral epistles that he doesn't mean that we have to preach the same crucifixion narrative passage every week. When he says, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified, it doesn't mean we tell the same story every week in one sense. Paul tells Timothy, for example, to preach the entire counsel of God. That's what Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles are doing in Acts. They're preaching God's word fully, both the law and the gospel. But it's significant in how they preach it. This is the point I want us to see, that to preach Christ crucified, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified, is to teach every text of Scripture intentionally in a Christian way. I'll give an example of what that means in a minute. But to preach every text, Old and New Testament, in a way that explicitly highlights its connection to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because to do less than that is to risk preaching a sub-Christian sermon, which is not hard to do, actually. You've seen it before, I'm sure. I've seen it. It means to... To preach this kind of sub-Christian sermon is to preach a text, to say true things. Indeed, true things may be about God, but to fail to connect it to Jesus and His work. That's what Paul's saying he wouldn't do. He knew only nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So let me give an example of how one might preach true things, true biblical things, but to do it without knowing Jesus or explicitly mentioning him. You could preach, for example, the story of David and Goliath. I could preach David and Goliath as a story of God's inspired word, which is true, his word that is authoritative for us today, which is true, but I could preach it as a text ripped out of its position in the storyline of Scripture Divorced from the context of the rest of the Bible, and by doing so, distort the message and leave Jesus out. I could say, for example, that David was so brave, and he trusted God so much that God blessed him and let him slay the giant. And God also wants you to trust in him so much that you can slay the giants in your life and earn the blessings of the kingdom. Everything in there is true, in some sense at least. But what I have left out of the story is Jesus Christ. There's nothing explicit about Jesus in that sermon. You could, in fact, preach that, that whole little mini-sermon in a Jewish synagogue and nobody would be upset. But if I look at the story of David and Goliath in part of the larger narrative of Scripture, then I'll actually see that the person in the story that I am most like is not David. I am most actually like the Israelites lined up behind David, shaking in my boots, unable to overcome the immense villain and certain death that stands before me. That's who I am. I'm not the victor in life. 
And ever since Genesis 3, all of God's people have been the sinners. And they needed a great David to stand up before them and to win the battle in their place because they couldn't do it. And that David is the Christ-type figure. Christ has come and defeated death. He's defeated the villain and he's done it on behalf of a people who couldn't do it for themselves. That's the great thing, but he has done it at the cost of his own life. So the the end result of that story of the Philistine laying on the ground dead, that's actually what our victor looks like. He died for us. But he didn't stay that way, praise God. And so you see how explicitly connecting each text to Christ is how we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how we make complete sense of any part of the Bible is thinking about it in light of its place within redemptive history. Specifically how it relates to the cross and then how we relate to the cross. See, we've been given the fullness of revelation in Christ and in his work. And in light of those things, we must view the rest of Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we won't get the text right if we don't understand how it connects to Jesus. And then how Jesus connects to us specifically in his work to save sinners. And that's the glorious simplicity of a faithful gospel minister. So in one sense, every sermon's going to be the same because it's going to point you to Jesus. That's what it should be. The simple, faithful message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is not consumed with being up on every prevailing wind of doctrine and philosophy that the world has. He's not scavenging for the latest church growth models and trends and projections. He's content with the same message and the same ministry, the same proclamation that has birthed and blessed the church of God for thousands of years. We as a church and we as individuals must decide how we will apply Paul's words here. Will we be content with the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the means and the ministry that God has provided in His Word? Will we be content with the simple preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and with prayer and with fellowship and with the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Or will we listen to the world that says you need the latest and the greatest? Those things were good back then for your parents, but today we're different. Young people, millennials, we're different. No. We have the same problem, and that is sin, and we need the same solution. Preaching simply Christ and Him crucified. We'd be fools to think that the temptations to change and to neglect this simple message won't come to our church. They come to every church. They don't all look the same. Satan's not that dumb. But the temptations come, and they can tear apart any and every church. We may not be dividing over whether or not to start a Frisbee golf ministry over here, but we can certainly be divided over other matters. Should we wear masks or not? Should we start small groups or not? Should we sing new songs or old songs? Churches have split over smaller things. Name your debate. Any one of them can split the church as Corinth is being split now over tribalism and personalities. Satan knows how to tear apart churches, and we are not immune. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have opinions, nor that we should even charitably debate these different matters. 
But if we're not content with following Paul's simple practice of proclaiming Christ and him, and him crucified, then we're in trouble. And so let us ever be on guard against the temptations to split and fracture or adjust the message that we've received, the message that has saved us, that Christ was crucified in the place of sinners. Let's move on to verse 3. We've seen Paul's plan. We've seen Paul's practice for ministry. Now in verse 3, we'll see Paul's presence in ministry. Paul's presence in ministry. He says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Paul, apparently, did not get the memo about what kind of speaker people want. He wasn't listening. The people in Corinth, just like the people in Montgomery, were impressed with polished speakers. Someone with rhetorical flair. Someone that's witty, sharp, funny, relatable. You can just look at the videos on TV or online, whatever gets all the views and the retweets. It's when somebody's clever and sharp and they can bite back really fast. Right? When some news anchor destroys somebody's argument on live TV. When Ben Shapiro makes some liberal cry. That's what gets all the retweets. That's what people want to see. And frankly, the church isn't often very different from that. We like to see our team dominate and crush the competition. And in that environment, Paul would have been crushed. He wouldn't have stood a chance. Paul came in weakness and fear and trembling because in the eyes of the influential Corinthians, Paul was a person without means, without strength, without influence, without status. He was a nobody. He's no better than a slave. Not only that, other biblical texts give us clues that Paul was a very unimpressive person, both in stature and appearance and in his manner. He was likely a short Run-of-the-mill Jew, possibly with poor eyesight. And if you believe some of the extra-biblical sources, he was bald and not particularly good-looking. He was far from being the chiseled depiction of Roman athletic gods that would have been around their pantheons of the day. He was forgettable, unremarkable, nothing special. That's why he came in weakness, not, not bravado. Fear and trembling, not dominating presence and assurance. I'm not even sure Paul would have made it past the first round of any pastoral search committee today, to be honest. If Paul submitted his resume with audio of his sermons, and they start listening to those sermons, and the voice starts off with a, a little quiver... It's a little shaky in the pulpit. People turn it off. That's not impressive. That's not the kind of guy we want. That's not the kind of preacher that can command a room, marshal the troops, and speak to us day in and day out, can inspire us with clever and funny stories. It's easy to listen to, that's relatable, that's authentic, that will draw a crowd. If many churches were honest, what they want is a Johnny Carson or a Jimmy Fallon. They don't want a Paul. But the problem with such desires, with such preferences, 
for qualities in a preacher is that if someone isn't content with Paul as their preacher, they're probably not going to be content with Jesus as their Savior. If you're not content with Paul as your preacher, you won't be content with Jesus as your Savior. And I'll explain that. Because if you struggle to listen to someone that isn't beautiful and impressive, then you'll struggle to listen to an unimpressive Savior. Paul wasn't much to look at, and people ignored him. And Jesus was the same way. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. And so he was despised and rejected. He was ordinary looking. He was run of the mill. If you're always looking for the next beautiful and eloquent preacher, and you're never content with a simple, unassuming preacher that God has given to you, then you'll never be content with the simple, unassuming Christ. To be dissatisfied with humble preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is to be dissatisfied with the very wisdom and power of God. Paul's arguments above. It's one of his points so far in this passage. And to judge the value and quality of a preacher or a church based upon worldly definitions of success is to place your hope in vain things that will quickly pass away. Orators will come and go. Pulpiteers will rise and fall. Comedians' jokes will fade. And if your hopes are in any of these, then your hopes will also fade. But if your hope is in the message, the simple message of Christ and Him crucified, then your hope will never fade. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the unchanging, never-fading God. His work is always complete. It's never to be undone. And his work is simply this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and was born of a woman. And he lived the life that his people should have lived, but didn't. And he died the death that his people had earned. But he died in their place. But he didn't stay in the grave. God raised him on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling, waiting for his return where he will judge the living and the dead. We all must believe in him, and eternal life in him can be ours if we but believe. And so have you believed in this simple message? Do you this very moment put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Christ proclaimed in this simple message? If you do, then continue believing and remind yourself often, remind others often of this simple message. And if you do not believe, then I urge you on the basis of God's word to turn from your sins and look at this Jesus, this risen and reigning king. He is the only way for you to have salvation, the only way to cleanse your conscience and be made to have rest. He's the only one who can save your soul from perishing in hell for all of eternity. And all you must do is believe. But you must believe. There is no other path. There is no other Savior. Believe in this simple message proclaimed to you in fear and trembling from the Scriptures. This was Paul's presence in ministry. And that's the presence of every faithful and humble minister of God's Word. Fourth 
We've seen Paul's plan, his practice, his presence in ministry. Now let's look at his proclamation in verse 4. Paul's proclamation in verse 4. We've seen how he's preached. That's in fear, trembling. Now let's see what he preached. Verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul was not preaching a message of plausible words of wisdom. He had determined in verse 2, I decided to know nothing but Christ crucified. And in verse 4, we see that he was successful in what he had decided to do. My speech was not in plausible words of wisdom. Not in lofty words or speech. And that's because human wisdom does not adorn God's wisdom. God's wisdom needs no human adornment. These kinds of lofty speech of words of human wisdom, we talked about them several times in chapter 1. These are philosophically enticing. They're intellectually pleasing. They're appealing. They're words that can actually stir the affections and get people to act for a time. They're captivating. They're motivating. These words are used by great success by false teachers, for example. Paul speaks of the Judaizers in Galatians 2. Or in 2 Timothy 3, those false teachers that would capture weak women with their words. They would use their words for selfish and sordid gain. We could look at others throughout church history who use their words in slippery ways to pass off their false teaching. Old names you may have never heard before, like Marcion and Arius, Pelagius, later names like Socinius. There's dozens of them on TV today. But Paul wouldn't do it. He determined to preach Christ and Him crucified and not in a manner that stole the glory from Christ and put it on Himself. In a manner that instead kept the glory squarely on the Savior. And what was the fruit of such a ministry? Paul says it was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The word for demonstration here is courtroom language. He's saying that nobody is able to refute the evidence that he's highlighting here. I have irrefutable evidence. And what is that evidence? Paul's simple preaching of the cross was a demonstration of the Spirit because it was accompanied by the work of the Spirit. That is conversions. People were saved. People were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, which testifies to the validity of Paul's message and the manner in which he was proclaiming it. But not only that, his, spirit, or his preaching was a demonstration of power. Power is a word that's often associated in the New Testament with the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that the disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit would descend upon them at Pentecost. And Paul's ministry demonstrated this kind of power. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Faithful proclamation of the gospel under the blessing of the Holy Spirit will demonstrate this kind of power. People will be saved. Sinners will be converted. Saints will be built up and spurred on in their holiness. 
And Paul is here asking the Corinthians to look at his ministry resume. He says, I came to you shaking, quivering, and yet my ministry was fruitful. I came a weak man, but my ministry bore powerful fruit. I was not wise or eloquent, and yet you Corinthian believers heard the message and believed. You are my incontrovertible evidence. That's what Paul is saying. The reason you're a Christian today is because my ministry had power. Had the Holy Spirit's blessing. And he did all of that. Deliberately avoiding all of the very things that the Corinthians were enthralled with. Everything that you want, I intentionally neglected. So that you could be saved by God's power. That's what he's saying. Consider yourselves. And why did he do it this way? Let's look at verse 5 and see the final point. Paul's purpose in his ministry. Paul's purpose in his ministry. And I was with you in fear and much trembling, he said. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why did I do all this? Why did I decide to do it this way and not do it the world's way? So that your faith might be built on God's power, not on man's wisdom. You see, the rhetoricians, the orators of the day had a kind of power, just like today. They had the ability to move an audience They could evoke a response. They could tug at people's emotions. They could rally the troops to action. Humanly speaking, they had power. And they could get the job done. Paul's preaching, on the other hand, without any rhetorical flair, without any polish or stylistic embellishment, was the means that God had chosen To bring about the faith of each one of these Corinthian believers who were now smitten with all of these worldly bells and whistles. And so Paul here is again illustrating the same principle from chapter 1. That the power of God is stronger than man's power. Paul's preaching, even though it exhibited the weakness of God, humanly speaking, has demonstrated itself to actually be the power of God which is evidenced by the Corinthians themselves. Paul is saying, you believe today because I preached a plain, simple, faithful message. A message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I did that on purpose, he says. Verse 5, he states in verse 5, that his intention in preaching a plain and simple message was so that their faith would rest in the power of God alone. Not in Paul Not in his ability to stir them up. Not in Apollos or Peter. But in God. In God alone. It's easy to see when you look at church history and you look at churches across this land to see how many people are drawn to personalities. How many people come to church to hear from their favorite speaker. To hear the message and the stories and inspirational anecdotes that happened in Corinth happens today. People can be 
so enamored with certain ministry leaders that they can begin to place their very allegiance, their very affections, their confidence on some man or woman instead of on God and His power. They can come to treat that speaker as the highest authority, as if they're virtually infallible. They've never been wrong. They've never led me astray. Whatever they say must be the right thing. In fact, they feed me so well, I don't even actually have to have a quiet time. I just pull them up and listen to them because they get more out of the Bible than I ever do. So I'm just going to let them feed me. And over time, your faith can slowly slip from God and His Word onto a, a man or woman, onto an eloquent speaker. They become like an idol. You listen to them more than you actually listen to God. You care more about what they think of you than what God thinks of you. You hold their opinion higher than God's opinion. And in all practicality, you seek their presence more than you seek God's presence. You want their approval and affirmation more than you want God's. And what you've done is you've built your foundation upon a man and his wisdom rather than God and his wisdom. And that can happen to any of us. We can slowly begin to slip away from the simple message of Christ and him crucified and begin to build our foundation upon someone else. This is a theme that comes up later in chapter 3. But each of us is building upon something. We're pouring our lives out for something. Are we sure that we're building upon the sure foundation of Christ and Him crucified? Are you building your life on something else? Maybe without even thinking about it, you've begun to build your life on some other shaky foundation. Maybe it's the foundation of what everybody thinks about me. Maybe it's some more stuff. Some more money, a better job, a bigger house, a nicer car, a new phone. Maybe it's indulging, pleasure, sensuality. Or maybe it's simply that you built your life upon someone other than Jesus as your foundation. Whatever it is, tonight can be your chance to hear again the message of Jesus Christ crucified in the place of sinners. Christ came and died in the place of people who built their lives on the wrong foundation. If you're addicted to the praise of men, Christ can free you from that. If you're driven by greed and materialism, Christ can liberate you from that. If you've indulged in sinful pleasure and sensuality, Christ can wash you of that and make you clean. If you've built your life upon someone other than Jesus, He can forgive you. And restore you. That's the good news of the gospel. His power, the power of God over sin and death. And he has the power to free you from whatever sin has entrapped you. Come to him and believe and be washed of the sin that's grabbing at your soul. Come and be forgiven by your loving Savior. He's ready and willing to receive any that would come to him. And merely believe. Scripture says... That he will not cast out any that come to him. Come and be forgiven. Come and be restored. Come and be washed. 
having been cleansed in his blood, let us all be on guard against the temptation to build our lives upon anything or anyone other than a simple Christ and him crucified. We will close tonight by visibly reminding ourselves of this simple gospel message. We have before us at the Lord's table the bread and the juice, pictures of his body and blood. His body was broken for our sins and his blood was shed that we might be forgiven. This is the foundation. This is the simple gospel message, the message upon which Paul has built his ministry and upon which we have built our very lives. And so entrance, admittance to this table is by Scripture restricted to only those who have come to Christ by faith. If that describes you, if you're like the disciples in Acts 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to Paul's teaching, for example, found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to come. But if you have not yet come to faith and followed in obedience to Christ by being baptized, then let these plates pass. Come to Him in faith. And then join us at the table. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of a simple message. That all we must do is believe. And in believing, we have life. We have forgiveness. We have full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, we thank you for these, the picture of the gospel that we see in this table. We pray that you would set these elements apart, that they would be a blessing to your church, that they would build up those who are weak and weary, that they would encourage those who need encouragement, that we would have the gospel message, the simple message of the gospel ringing in our ears as we go throughout the week. Bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.